If you take your Bibles and stand with me as we read God's Word, we're looking at Romans 8, 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can take the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 651. Page 651 as we read and see a description of life in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Fathers, we now ask you to read our hearts, having read your word, that you would speak into our hearts, you would speak into our minds, you would speak into the spirit, the spirit of those who have your spirit dwelling in them, the spirit of those who do not yet, have not yet received your spirit and do not yet know you. We pray that you would speak to all of us here because at one time we were all according to the flesh and yet by your intervention, your grace, your son, some of us have entered in and are according to the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge and learn this morning more of what it is to be in your Spirit and to be of the Spirit. And we pray that those who are not yet received this great gift, that they would receive it this morning. Please let the preaching and the listening and the hearing all be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The billboards simply said, come see live pheasant. Another one simply said, come pet baby pigs. And still yet a third said, come see live buffalo. The series of billboards beckoned you to veer off the Kansas highway to get your gas in a meal at Cowboy Bob's Circus of Fun. Somehow, Cowboy Bob seemed to know that it would take more than cheap gasoline and a hamburger to get vacationers off the interstate. 
So as you neared his exit, each billboard made bigger and more exotic promises. Not only could you pet baby pigs, but you could also feed live rattlesnakes. Hopefully not with baby pigs. <laughs> but the best attractions were still yet to come. Come see the five-legged cow, the next billboard advertised. And if that were not tantalizing enough, then the six-legged steer touted on the next sign was sure to allure you off the highway. Yet to come, however, was the promise of all promises, the biggest and best, save for last, lest you even think about driving by Cowboy Bob's without a visit, the final billboard promised you could see the world's largest amadillo. Who could resist a promise like that? Well, lots of people because it's now closed. It's no more to be. Some promises simply leave you disappointed in life. But the gospel never disappoints. The gospel always delivers on what it promises. And that's what we're learning in this series on Romans 8. And as we continue, Paul begins with one of the most glorious promises of all promises in verse 1, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now and no condemnation when you die. The record of our sins has been wiped clean. And through faith in Christ, we are now declared by God as righteous as Christ is, resulting now in a, in a right relationship, in a right standing with God Almighty. That's what the gospel can do for you. In fact, that's what God did. He did what the law could not do for you. God, in a sense, replaced the best that you could ever hope to do, which is never enough, with what God can do, which is always enough. So according to verse 4, as Paul writes, that the righteous requirement of the law now might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but now walk according to the Spirit. Paul wants us to know something. He wants us to leave here this morning with something, a truth, a gospel truth in our hearts and in our minds. A gospel truth that transforms us and grips us. He wants us to know that this promise of no condemnation, though, is only true for those who are in the Spirit. Not for those who are outside the Spirit or not according to the Spirit. In other words, it's only true for those who are in Christ, not those outside of Christ. And so immediately... As you begin to read through these first few verses of Romans 8, and especially as you get to Romans 8, verse 4 and 5 in the subsequent verses, you see that Paul is contrasting here two groups of people in this world. Those according to the flesh and those according to the Spirit. What we would define or call those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Those who are saved, those who are unsaved. Those who are redeemed, those who are not redeemed. And as Paul says, these two groups of people, they represent two different mindsets, which lead to 
two different lifestyles, which ultimately results in two different destinies. And we learned last Sunday that there are three things that distinguish those people in the flesh. Unbelievers, if we will. A mind that is set on the things of the flesh. A heart that is now hostile to God. And a life that cannot please God. And Paul says the ultimate consequence of this life, of this heart, of this mind, is death. It's spiritual death as well as physical death. That's our condition. That is our destiny when we remain in the flesh. But now, oh, now, I'm so glad you're here this morning, because that was last Sunday. But this Sunday, we come to the other side, the positive side, if you will. Last Sunday was kind of the bad news of those in the flesh, but today we hear the good news of those in the Spirit. And so now, at the beginning of verse 9, the issue is, as Paul enlightens, as he puts forth for us this morning, the issue is, well, what's different about you? What, what sets you apart from the people that he just described in the flesh? I love how Paul begins this verse, verse 9, look at it. But you, that's amazing, I love that. You're like, man, he, he, he loves some simple stuff here. He likes that, but you, oh, it's a mighty, it's awesome, it's powerful. But you, because what he is doing, he is contrasting those that are in the flesh with those who are in the spirit. And he, remember, he's writing to the Christians at Rome, the church at Rome, and he's talking to them specifically. He's, he's just described those in the flesh. And he's saying, but you, oh, you are different. This is not you how I have just described it. You are of the spirit. And so there's a group of people who are different from those just described. There are people who are not in the flesh. And as we said, in context, it's, it's the, the believers at the Church of Rome, but by application, but you, applies to every one of us here this morning, who are in the Spirit. So Paul, what he's also getting ready to do, is to tell us then what it means to actually be a true believer in Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to tell us what it means to be a, a true Christian, what it looks like, what makes us different. He's getting ready to tell us the answer to a very important question. What's different about you? What's different about me? And the answer is, notice on the screen coming up, or in your notes, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That is what's different about you. Look what he writes in verse 8, or 9, I'm sorry. Romans 8, verse 9, he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So this is the crucial difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The very presence of God's Spirit dwelling in us it's what sets us apart. And the word dwell, oh, it's a fascinating word. It's an important word. It's more than just be there, 
like you might be in a bus station or at an airport or in a store. And it means more than just visit, like when you visit your in-laws and then after three days you're ready to leave. No, no, no. Dwell means so much more than that. Dwell comes from the word house or home. And so the implication as to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ has actually taken up residence in you. This is where he lives. You are now his home. And he will now have a, a profound influence on your life. He will have an influence on how you live your life. He dwells there. He communes with you. He communicates with you. He leads and guides. Now, did you notice that Paul does not use just one title for the Holy Spirit here? It's interesting. He is called the Spirit of God. And then immediately, Paul calls him the Spirit of Christ. So which is he? Well, both titles are referring to the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is equally the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of God the Son. In fact, the Holy Spirit communicates so much of Christ that it is even fitting for Paul to say, Christ is in you, as he does in verse 10. This is why now Paul begins verse 9, and he says, But you, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, is what makes you different. Man, if you don't get anything else, get this. What makes me different as a believer, as a Christ follower, is this very truth here. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. So the big question this morning is not, do you go to church? The big question is not, have you been baptized? The big question is not, do you partake in communion? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you give? The big question this morning is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Because if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, then Paul is basically telling us here this morning, you are not a Christian. You are not in Christ, and Christ is not in you. And nothing else matters until God's grace then intervenes in your life, opens up your heart and your eyes to see your need for Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Nothing else matters until that happens in your life. But, Paul says, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then get this, you are now part of God's relocation program. You're like, I am? Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? Look at this in the, on the screen. God's relocation program. You are now no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then Paul says you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And get this, it's all because of God. You don't get yourself out of the flesh. Why? Well, because life in the flesh includes not being all that bothered by it. In fact, we are spiritually dead in the flesh, as we learned last Sunday. And so that means only God can change your spiritual condition. Only God can relocate you from being in the flesh to being in the spirit. You say, well, what does this mean, being in the Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean you're in the mood for something, like you're in the mood for chocolate or pizza. This last Friday night, my family was in the mood for barbecue. 
I, want, I was in the mood for Italian. I got outvoted. So we went to Oklahoma Joe's, and I have to admit it was good. We were in the mood for bar. It's not what this means, though. Nor does it mean you're on a constant spiritual high when Paul says you're now in the Spirit. Being in the Spirit is the opposite of being in the flesh, which is what we looked at last Sunday. It involves a spiritual change of state or condition. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. Listen to what he writes. It is not that a man just changes his beliefs and no more. No, he was in the realm of the flesh, and he is now in the realm of the spirit. He was dominated by the flesh before and governed by it. He is now in a realm which is governed and controlled and dominated by the spirit. And we can't make this change ourselves. This is something God does through the work of his son and the power of his spirit. So what does life now in the spirit look like? And what difference does it make? In other words, why should I care? What relevance does it have for me now? Well, Paul gives us a description or a picture of those living in the spirit. I want us to look at that for the rest of our time. Five pictures, five descriptions of the same picture, if you will. Number one, the first description is, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Look what Paul writes in verse 5 again. Reading out the English Standard Version, here's what he says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. As we learned last Sunday, the term mind means more than just your intellect. Paul's talking about your mindset. He's talking about your whole mentality. Everything there is about you. It includes your affections, your emotions, the ambitions and desires of your heart, and what you dwell upon. So those in the Spirit set their minds now in a certain direction. And what direction is that? It's on the things of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul describes the things of the Spirit as the things of God. And later on in the same chapter, verse 14, Paul says that those in the flesh know nothing about the things of God. In fact, those things are foolishness to people who are still living in the flesh. Why? Because they don't even understand the things of God. They don't comprehend the things of God. And so they're just foolishness to them, Paul says. But those who are in the Spirit, oh, we have now been awakened to the things of the Spirit or the things of God. And so we set our mind on those very things. And you say, well, what are those things of the Spirit? What are those things of God? Well, time doesn't allow, because there are many things we could talk about here this morning. So let me just emphasize one thing of God, or one thing of the Spirit, that those in the Spirit set their minds on. And that is our relationship with God. Here's a question for you to think about. How do you think of yourself? How do you think of yourself? Are you interested in yourself as a spiritual being created in the image of God? 
Or are you simply interested in yourself solely in the context of your job, your marital status, your grade, your hobbies, your career? Is that normally the only way in which you concern yourself about in those categories of life? You see, the first thing that is true about those now in the Spirit is that they are concerned about themselves, their lives, in relation to God, their Creator, now their Heavenly Father. Those in the flesh don't have this interest. But you always have it. This is the thing you set your mind on. This is the thing you set your mind in that direction of. Yes, you mind other things while we're living in this world, but let me tell you, those things do not come first. It's always your relationship to God. You are not concerned about this before. You weren't concerned about it before. Why? Well, before, you were in the flesh, and you were hostile to God. Remember that last Sunday? And the things of God were foolishness to you, but that is not true of those in the Spirit now. Now you are concerned about your relationship to God. And you are ill at ease if anything clouds that relationship, if anything disturbs that relationship. This is the thing that you mind. This is the thing that you pursue in life. Those in the Spirit set their minds on their relationship to God first and foremost. Why? Because it's out of that that all the other things flow out of. So let me ask you, do you have this great concern? Can you say that what matters to you most is your relationship to God? Paul then tells us why those in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Why this is now even possible. Number two, you are spiritually alive from the dead. You are spiritually alive from the dead. Paul writes in Romans 8, now verse 6, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. Now, listen to me carefully. Because there are many, 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 many things we could say about you as a believer in Jesus Christ. But do you realize the greatest thing to say is that you are now alive from the dead. You are spiritually alive in Christ. And the life of Christ is now in you. There was a time when this was not true of you. There was a time when this could not be said of you. Before, you were, as we learned last Sunday, the walking dead. In other words, you are a dead man walking in the flesh. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But now, now, you are alive from the dead. As Paul says, to set the mind on the spirit is what? It's life. And because of this life, You now have the ability to respond to God. And you now have a desire for the things of God. And you now want to grow in your relationship with God. 
That's 1 Peter 2, 12, 2, verse 2 tells us. We are now, we are like newborn babes. We now have life in us, spiritual life in us. And as like newborn babies, we now crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, in your new life in Christ. In this response to God, this desire for God, in the things of God, let me tell you, is proof of life. In fact, even when we are at our very worst, even when we are at, are at our lowest point, even when we are living in Romans chapter 7, remember what Romans 7 is about? Oh, it's Paul's description, testimony of his own life of struggling with sin, and he's at a low point in his life of struggling with sin. And we all can identify with Paul in Romans 7. And so even when we are there, let me tell you, there is always this evidence of life within every true Christian. Perhaps an illustration will help. Because as we've already learned, even the flesh can appear good, can it not? Even the flesh outwardly in our behaviors can appear moral and even virtuous. So, so what's the difference then? Those in the flesh may appear good. Those in the flesh may even do good. But those in the flesh are still what? Dead. There's no life in them. Now we're talking about spiritual life. Yes, their heart is still beating, blood still flowing through them, but they are the walking dead. But at the moment, a person now receives Christ, receives the Spirit of God. They now have life. They have been made alive spiritually. And it's the same difference between an artificial flower and a living flower. The artificial flower at times may actually look much better than the living flower. In fact, how many of you have been fooled by an artificial flower? And you're like, man, that, that is amazing. I can't believe it. And then you go touch it and you're like, oh, artificial. can't believe I fell for that. In fact, the living flower may even be drooping, may appear dying a little bit, but the artificial flower is still what? It's still dead. It's lifeless and changeless. The living flower may be drooping and even dropping its petals, but if you give it water and nourishment, it will lift up its head. It will open out in all its glory and beauty. Why? Because it is living. It has life where the artificial flower does not. Here's the point I want to make for you. To be a Christian is to be spiritually alive from the dead. Now, this truth is important because it helps us to understand the position of others or perhaps even ourselves when we struggle with sin or even live in sin for a period of time. God has a specific word for this. Back in the Old Testament, minor prophet of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 7. Paul uses the word backsliding. I mean, not Paul, but God. Here's what he says. My people, in reference to his children of Israel, my people are bent on backsliding from me. 
And so here's what I want you to take away. The backslider is not dead. He is still alive. The backslider may be sinning in some spectacular ways, in some grievous ways as a child of God, but he is still a child of God, and the seed of life is still in him. You say, how do we know that? The proof is that the backslider always returns to the Lord in repentance of their sin. You say, why? Because he's miserable in his sin. He cannot abandon his faith. He cannot revert totally to the ways of the world. He knows that he's living contrary to his very new nature now within him, in Christ. And he knows he belongs to Christ. He belongs to God. He's part of the family of God. And so like Jonah, he can run, but he cannot hide. He cannot hide from God, but more importantly, he cannot hide from the life that is now within him. This life in the Spirit will always manifest itself in true believers in Jesus Christ. For it is more powerful than life in the flesh. I can testify to this. I have before. Many of you know my own testimony on this very issue. In my early 20s, latter years of college down in Springfield, and even the first few years here, woe was I living far from God. Living in sin in the flesh. And yet, there's still life within me that I could not run from, I could not escape. In due time, God pricks your heart, he convicts you of sin, and that life will respond to God and his word and his people. And it will repent. Sometimes it takes six months, six days, six years, perhaps even 60 years. Only God is, can be the judge of all of this ultimately. But life will always manifest itself. And if you have this life in the spirit, then Paul says something else is true about you. Number three, you have peace with God in your heart. You have peace with God in your heart. Look what else he writes in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, why the addition of peace? Why does Paul select peace? Well, let's be honest. He could have chosen a lot of other words to describe those of us in the spirit, right? I mean, Paul is talking about those in the Spirit, and we know from Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit, as we learned last summer, is what? Love, joy, and then what? Peace. So why does Paul speak of peace and not love and joy? And maybe the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, remember, Paul is contrasting two groups of people here, right? He's contrasting those in the flesh with those in the spirit. And let me tell you something. Peace is the positive side of everything he has said negatively about those in the flesh. Another reason Paul chooses the word peace is because, get this, peace with God is the first thing we experience as a result of our justification by God. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by our faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to consider with me for a moment, consider the beauty of our peace with God. 
According to verse 7, the unbeliever is not only spiritually dead, but at the same time, Paul says he is hostile to God. Some of your versions have the word enmity. In other words, he regards God as an enemy. And he is at war with God in his heart. Therefore, such a person, now Paul says, cannot even submit to God's laws and cannot please God with his life. Instead, he is a law unto himself and he lives to please himself. This person lives in a constant state of inner turmoil and chaos and ultimately inner guilt. And he knows nothing of the experience of what it's like to have inner peace with God. So before we become Christians, here's our condition. Here's what we're living like. We are fighting with God. We're fighting against God before we become Christians. But the moment we become a Christian, that fight ends, and we now have peace with God. Why? Because Paul says we are now reconciled to God. And we all know what reconciliation is, right? You guys are married. You understand that. You and your spouse, you're fighting, you're arguing. You don't want to lay in the same bed next to each other. You're at war in the bedroom and in the home. But oh, forgiveness comes into the picture and you're reconciled. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? All of a sudden the kids are like, where'd the warfare go in the home? It's now peace, it's loving. It's the same thing with God. We've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're no more at war with Him. We're no more enemies of Him. And so we now have peace with God. We're in a right standing with Him. And let me tell you, this peace with God, you know what it brings? It brings peace within. And we find a perfect description of the restlessness that characterized our lives before this peace with God, before life in the Spirit. In Isaiah 57, 20, it says, But the wicked are like the, the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. The sea's constant movement is wasted energy, and the churning up of mud and mire is a perfect representation of our lives in the flesh. But this restlessness, let me tell you, here's the beautiful thing about it. It comes to an end when we trust Christ to set us free from the life of sin and death. Does this now mean that those in the Spirit have problem-free lives? Oh, if we only wished, right? No, it doesn't mean we have problem-free lives. But it does mean we have peace-filled hearts. You could say it's like living at the center of a hurricane. It's said at the center of a hurricane, there is complete peace and rest. Everything is turning violently round and round, but at the center, not. It's fixed. And so it is with those in the Spirit. This is why Paul is able to say later on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. What's that? What's that mean? Nothing is an all-inclusive term. In other words, you get to throw into it anything that is occurring to you. 
all the troubles, difficulties, problems, and trials that this world has to offer. And Paul goes on and says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and catch this, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now that's beautiful. Life in the flesh, Paul says, is death. But life in the spirit is life and peace. And this peace will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Man, that's what the gospel can do for you. But wait, wait, Paul isn't finished with this picture of life in the spirit. What he says next is implied but not stated. Number four, you can and do please God with your life. You can and do please God with your life. Notice what he writes in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But the opposite is just as true about those who are in the spirit. You can and you do please God with your life. In other words, Paul is simply repeating what he said in the first half of verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So get this, people in whom the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled are people who please God. And that means not only that God looks down upon us as he sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and when he sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you know what? He is pleased. He's pleased about that. But it also means that we are now able to serve him and to obey him. We are now capable of pleasing him and glorifying him with our lives through the power of the Spirit dwelling in us. In fact, we now, get this, we want to please God with our lives. Whereas before, we had no desire to please God with our lives. Why? Because our only desire was about pleasing self. Enoch. How many are familiar with the guy by the name of Enoch? Enoch in the Old Testament, Genesis. Enoch is an example of a man who pleased God. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God just took him away. Now, why did God just take this man away to himself without passing through death? Well, Hebrews 11.5 gives us the answer when it says, Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Understand, the people of God please God. You cannot separate the two. This is one of the most defining marks of of living in the Spirit, and the Spirit living in us. Peter states it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, there's that phrase again, I love it, but you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we are not only people who are declared righteous by God, but we are people who are saved in order to declare the praises of God to those around us. 
It, that is to demonstrate them, to manifest them in our lives. And you're like, well, how do we do this? Peter tells us how we do this in verses 11 and 12 when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We'll talk about this more next Sunday. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So ask yourself this question. Am I pleasing God with my life? Does my life glorify God and demonstrate his goodness and grace to the world around me? Before life in the Spirit, that was an impossibility. But now those in the Spirit can and do please God with their lives. They glorify God with their lives. Paul gives us one last description, number five. You live with hope of a physical resurrection. Look what he writes in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's a fact. Our bodies are dying. You're like, tell me something I didn't know. Our bodies are dying, and that is true of every person in the world. We try to stay in shape, but even the fittest body is dying. We're all carrying the fatal disease of sin. The seeds of death have been planted in your body through Adam's sin. That's why it eventually wears out. And dies. So if you live long enough, you are going to die. Happens to all of us sooner or later. Now, the world tells us something a little different. The world tells us if you're not in shape, if you're not thin, if you're not beautiful, if you're not sexually active, then you're not really living. But is that true? No way. Because real life, get this, real life is not found in the body. Real life is found in the spirit. The body is not to be despised. That's not the idea that Paul's saying here. We're not to despise our bodies. We're not to, it's not that we're not to take care of our bodies even. After all, God made our bodies, did he not? He created them. But the fact is, sin is killing us all. And yet God imparts true life to our souls, not to our bodies. So don't be fooled by the world and the culture around you. Be filled with the Spirit instead. That's where real life is found. Now, God not only gives new life to our souls right now, in the present tense, but He will raise our bodies to future. Blow me away. Hold on, this is great. Notice the promise. Here it is in verse 11. Look at it. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now get this. What Paul is saying is your resurrection is as certain as Jesus' resurrection because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that spirit will give life to your mortal body. 
Did you guys not hear that? I, that's just the coolest thing in the world, right? Think about it. God did not create your body to just throw it away. Christ did not die for you, did not purchase your body just to throw it away. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and this Spirit will one day raise up your mortal body out of the grave. Man, now how refreshing, how, how awesome is that to kind of stand back and think how triumphant we really are through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do Christians die? Yes, we die like everyone else dies. But get this, death is not the end. When your body is laid to rest in the grave, your spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. But that's not the end. And when Jesus returns, your body will be raised from the dead, immortal, incorruptible, eternal, never more to waste away and die. So just think about it. No more pain. No more medications, no more cancer, no more walkers, no more sickness, no more arthritis, no more knee and hip replacements, no more disease, and no more death. Paul is telling us here that you have a promise, and that promise is a glorified body, a resurrected body just like Christ himself. Blow me away! Man, that's phenomenal! That's the triumph of God's Spirit in all of God's children. Way back, way back in 1631, Robert Bruce was sentenced to death for preaching the gospel. And on the morning of his execution, his daughter cooked him a single egg for breakfast at his request. <laughs> so I thought about, I'm like, who cares about cholesterol when you're about to die, right? That egg, he writes, it, or said, it, it was so nice, he said that he almost asked his daughter to cook him another one. And then he paused and said to her, I had breakfast with you this morning. I'll have supper with Jesus tonight. Here was a man who knew how to live and knew how to die. He knew he was in the Spirit. And he knew the Spirit was dwelling in him. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Look at it. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? Look into your heart and ask yourself, does the Holy Spirit dwell in me? Do I have new life, eternal life, in Christ and in the Spirit? So are you ready to die? Listen, death. Death could come today. It could come tomorrow. It could come this week or even this year. No one knows when death will come to our lives. But here's what we do know. The body is dying, but the spirit is life. So do you have that confidence? Do you have that assurance? Do you know for sure that you have new life, eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit? And if you don't have this confidence, if you don't know for sure, and if you are here this morning listening without Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then come to Him. Trust Him. Listen, 
Call on Jesus and receive Him by faith. And He will save you and He will make you His own through the Spirit dwelling in you. So are you ready to die? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the glorious Gospel and what it can do for us. And Lord, we come to You this morning and we ask for a soul that is yet in darkness, a soul that is still dead in the trespasses of their sins, that You would intervene in that soul and that that person might be brought to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life in Christ and in the Spirit. Lord, we ask this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Kirk's going to sing a chorus here. And my plea to you is to respond. If God is speaking to you, if He's moving in your heart by His Spirit, to call out to Him and receive Christ as your Savior. Put your faith and trust in Him if you are not yet in the Spirit.